welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 10th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardell. Happy to welcome you to another edition of our program, to resource each Friday for insights and analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on best appellate practices and important developments in appellate law. We've got a great show for you. Today, we'll examine two California Supreme Court cases with meaningful implications for attorneys practicing in a range of areas. The High Court ruled on one at the end of February, and its decision in the other is due in the coming weeks. Luke Wake of the National Federation of Independent Business Small Business Legal Center joins us to chat about the case still awaiting its decision. That matter is Mendoza et al. v. Nordstrom, a private attorney general act suit that wound its way through state court and federal district court before the Ninth Circuit certified the case's three salient questions for review by the California Supreme Court. Those questions involve the interpretation of state labor codes that entitle employees in California to one day of rest out of seven and prevent employers from causing employees to work on that stipulated rest day. The questions here involve whether the seven days identified in the statute are part of a static Monday-to-Sunday type work week or might comprise any seven-day window, and also what exactly it means for an employer to cause an employee to miss a day of rest, whether, for instance, some coercion is required. The answers to those questions, Mr. Wake explains, have dramatic impacts in terms of scheduling flexibility, public policy generally, and significant potential liability that a decision favorable to the plaintiffs here would create. Then, Deputy City Attorney Will J. Perkey will visit to chat about Perry v. Bakewell Hawthorne LLC, a decision that harmonizes two civil procedure code sections and restates the court's modern, favorable approach toward summary judgment motions. The two code sections at issue are CCP 2034, under which an attorney may demand information on his or her opposite number's intended expert testimony, and CCP 473C, relating to summary judgment. The High Court, in a concise opinion overruling prior case law holding to the contrary, held that the failure to timely produce expert information in response to a 2034 motion could very well leave an attorney without any defense to a summary judgment motion, even where that attorney had mustered expert testimony in the interim. Mr. Perky will discuss the many practical implications that this rule will have for civil practitioners. Before we get to my guests, let me remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. To find a short true-false test through a link on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears, complete that and one hour of credit can be yours. Without any further ado, now let's get to my conversation, Mr. Luke Wake. Very happy to welcome to the podcast now Mr. Luke Wake, Senior Attorney with the National Federation of Independent Business. Mr. Wake filed an amicus brief in support of the defendants in the case we'll talk about presently. Uh, Mr. Wake, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So the case we're chatting about here, Mendoza et al. versus Nordstrom, it entails enough important state issues that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit referred it over to the California Supreme Court, or more specifically, they, they certified three of the cases salient and controlling uh, questions to the California Supreme Court. Those are questions of statutory interpretation, interpretation of the, the mm-hmm. California Labor Code, um, and we'll unpack each of them, but maybe broadly speaking, we could say they regard the rest that employees are, say, entitled to or that employers might need to provide in a given work week, uh, flexibility in terms of scheduling employees for consecutive numbers of, of days, things along those lines. Um, before we get too deeply into those specific questions, maybe we could start out with uh, the plaintiffs here and their their case. So who are the plaintiffs and what did they, they sue over? Sure. So in, in this case, uh, you've got Nordstrom's employees who 
sued because they said that Nordstrom's uh, was allowed them to work um, more than uh, seven or more than six consecutive days in a row. So um, you have, for example, um, one gentleman who started off as a barista at Nordstrom's and then as a sales representative, and um, he worked for a few years there at Nordstrom's. And on you know at least one occasion, uh, multiple occasions actually, he worked more than six consecutive days, but on each occasion um, had a days of rest um, if you were looking at it on a calendar week. So, for example, um, it's possible to have, you know, Monday and Tuesday off and then to work the remainder of the week and then into the next week and then have some days off in, in the next week. And under that scenario, you, you could work uh, more than six days um, in a row, so seven consecutive days. But um, and, and that's an issue here because California Labor Code prohibits um, uh, employers from having an employee work um, more than seven consecutive days. Um, but there's a question here as to whether or not that 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 statutory provision applies on a work week basis um, or or on a rolling basis because again that really matters uh, for scheduling purposes as you say it's a it's a fairly important distinction between that section of the labor code not allowing employees to work 7 days either in a set work week meaning like monday to sunday or just 7 days in any given um, stretch any rolling uh, number of, of seven days right say my, my employer is working on a, on, a, on a Monday through Sunday work week you know when they're dealing with overtime and whatnot um, so I might start uh, you know work week for my employer starts on Monday they might not call me into work until Wednesday so I might work the rest of that week without getting any overtime and then they might schedule me to you know work a few days you know at the beginning of next week but still I might have you know several days off later that week but under that scenario it's quite possible that I've worked seven consecutive days if, if you're looking at it on a rolling basis whereas there's absolutely no violation if you're looking at it on a on a work week basis sure okay so that Set work week or a rolling seven-day question is one of the three. And I believe on that question, the district court in uh, the central district did side with the plaintiffs, but nevertheless, the court dismissed the plaintiffs' claims on other grounds. What were the uh, the other grounds on which the case was dismissed? Right. Um, so the, the district court said that um, even you know, notwithstanding their their interpretation of of the um, seven-day rule. They said that there's an exemption under, under the labor code that allows, that basically says if as long as one of those um, days that, that have been worked in a, in a seven consecutive period um, is, is a, of a shift of six hours or less, then, then the employer is allowed to allow that employee to work as such. And so here, that, that mattered because in, in all of the instances where these these employees said that they that their employer violated the labor code by allowing them to work in seven consecutive days, and that all in each of those cases there was at least one uh, period that was uh, that was a shift of six hours or less. So Nordstrom is saying that they fall within that exception, um, and and then the other issue is that there's a real question of you know if you look at the statutory language it says um, that the employer shall not cause the employee to work. Um, I forget the exact language, but the, the, the operative word is cause. And so the question is, well, what does it mean to cause them to do that? Um, and the district court basically said, well, we don't think, you know, merely offering uh, the employee the opportunity to take those those shifts or asking them to do so is, is enough um, to, to have said that they caused them to do it. And so they, they sided with Nordstrom's on, on, on that question as well, because the employee can, can waive the um, their right, their entitlement, if you will, to, to not to have that day of rest. 
the plaintiffs do appeal, and the Ninth Circuit takes a look at these three questions, the, the set versus rolling seven-day period, the, the exemption question about the fewer than six hours worked in a given day, the, the meaning of cause in this um, section of the labor code, and, and so there's enough ambiguity, and I suppose the, these questions are, are so much more falling under the, the law of California rather than, than federal law that it's probably helpful for the California Supreme Court to take a look. I'd be curious to ask you uh, how often this tends to happen where the, the, the Ninth Circuit will, will ask the, the California Supreme Court to weigh in and, and what types of cases that we'll see these mm-hmm. sorts of certifications. Well, you've got to keep in mind that this case was initially filed in state court and then the um, the defendant, Nordstrom, removed it to federal court. So that was why they were in federal court. And, you know, from a defendant's perspective, it's often better to be in federal court than in California state courts. But uh, so I, I can totally understand why they would have done that. Um, but, you know, it's, I guess, not surprising in a case like this where there is an important, you know, question uh, of state law presented that the Ninth Circuit felt that it wasn't for them to to decide that issue of state law, that it was proper to certify it to the states. I, I would say because you know NFIB um, representing small business throughout the country files amicus briefs all over the place, so we're constantly monitoring these sort of these sort of cases when they when they arise. And you know it's not unusual necessarily to to see these sort of certifications. I, I would say in our state court filings, any it's it's hard to, to gauge. I'd say somewhere between ten and you know twenty five percent of of the filings we do in state courts are uh, in state supreme courts are um, with these sort of certifications. But it's hard to pin down a number. In that certification order, the Ninth Circuit essentially laid out each question and also laid out some evidence or some some reasoning as to how the questions could be either answered in one manner or the opposite manner. As to that first question, whether we're we're dealing with a a rolling seven-day period under the section or a set, say, Monday to Sunday work week, they said on the one hand, the term work week implying a, a set Monday to Sunday type situation is not included in the statutory language where or at least in the, in the pertinent section, where it, it does appear in other sections. So perhaps that would suggest the seven-day window could be rolling, um, benefiting the plaintiff's claim. But they say there's you know, certainly an alter- alternative ter- interpretation is reasonable. What's the evidence or reasoning on the other side of that question as to why it could be more likely that the statute implies a, a set seven-day Monday to Sunday type work week? So, okay, going back to the text, so Labor Code 551 says every person employed in any occupation is entitled to one day's rest therefrom in seven. And then Section 552 kind of supports that by saying no employer shall cause his employees to work more than six six days in seven. So, you know, the court, you know, the court did say this is ambiguous, and, and you're right that the plaintiffs do have an argument that you know, the legislature would have said work week if that's what they meant. Um, at least that's that's not an, you know, an unreasonable argument. Um, but the Labor Code, Section 510, says that any work in excess of eight hours on any seventh day of the, of the work week shall be compensated at a rate of no less than twice the regular rate of pay. And, and so that suggests, first, that, that there's you know, no absolute prohibition on having someone work seven days um, in, in a row. Um, so, so the court said that the concept of working the seventh day encompasses the concept of a work week. Um, at least that's that's a plausible interpretation, and and certainly the, the interpretation that we supported when we filed an amicus, and that view is also bolstered by the way by you know, sort of consistent interpretations from DLSC over the years. There's a wage order number seven, um, which provides that the, the provisions of Labor Code section five five one and five five two. Um, regarding the one day rest in seven shall not be construed to prevent an accumulation of days of rest provided. However, 
that um, in each calendar month, so they're talking in, in, in calendar terms, uh, that employees shall receive the equivalent of one day's rest in seven. And, 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 and similar guidance in another wage order um, as well. So uh, and, and in that separate wage order, I would note, they actually refer sp- explicitly to the term work week. And so it, certainly that's, it, it seems like that's been DLSC's interpretation. Certainly the, the assumption that employers have been operating on since as long as this um, day of rest provision has, has been on the books, which has been a long time. So. And so those are some, some statutory and some agency guidance bases upon which you, you argue um, in your amicus brief, you also cite some some policy concerns and some potential practical hardships that arise if the state would interpret that section to imply a, a rolling seven day period. What what are some of those hardships that uh, that you you outline? So so the plaintiff's view would would create, I think, very serious practical burdens for um, for employers, um, and and I think that's one reason that counsels in favor of of, of going with standard work week interpretation. So. For example, we talk about this as a hypothetical in, in our, our briefs. Now, you got to bear in mind that small business owners don't have the sort of flexibility that, you know, larger employers have where they've got more employees to maybe cover shifts. So you might have a situation where, you say, a coffee shop and you have three employees, maybe two of them um, are very limited in their availability. One has generally flexible. So let's say Janet is only available on Mondays and Tuesdays and Jen can only work the weekends and John is generally flexible. So under that constraint, you know, the employer is generally going to try to have John work Wednesdays through Fridays as a general matter. But, you know, problems might come up. So say, let's say John has been scheduled to work on Saturday and Sunday um, to cover, let's say, Jen can't work her usual shift because she's going to a wedding, which these sort of personal things come up all the time. Uh, well, that could create an irreconcilable scheduling problem if, you know, Janet, who usually covers Monday and Tuesday, ends up calling sick on both of those days. If, you know, if, if John started his work week on Wednesday and he worked the weekend because he took uh, those shifts for his coworker who, who was at a wedding, and then he works that following Monday because Janet's sick, well, at that point, he can't work on Tuesday under the, play, uh, under the plaintiff's um, theory here, no matter how much he might want to. And so that's, uh, you know, so the business is what forced to close their doors for a day because they can't cover his, have anyone work. And, you know, he's out the opportunity to make a little bit of money, which maybe he, you know, is a working, you know, trying to fund his way through college. Maybe he really wants that money. Um, and, and it just doesn't seem reasonable to, A, constrain the employer in that way. And, and frankly, if, um, if that's, especially if you're talking about a small business with, you know, not a lot of employees and these sort of constraints, if you adopt plaintiff's very rigid sort of view of things, it's going to result in employers having to deny reasonable requests for time off and and that creates hardships for employees who have you know personal lives to attend to so you're saying perhaps an employee might want to to work a greater number of consecutive days in advance of say then taking a few days off for personal matters or for taking a trip or something like along those lines yeah yeah um i mean think about it there's there's all, all sorts of reasons why an employee might want to work uh, more for a while. Maybe I'm a college student and, and I know exams are coming up. And so I don't want to be cash poor during the exams. I need, you know, because if I'm going to have to take some time off during the exams uh, or to take a hiking trip, I really want to do or to, you know, go see family, you know, on the East Coast or abroad. Um, that's going to create a problem for me if I if I if I can't. Um, kind of stockpile a little bit of money. Maybe I'm saving for an engagement ring or a down payment on a house. 
Um, I, you know, I could have innumerable reasons for why I want to be able to work a little bit more right now and, and why I want to have the flexibility to, uh, to do that. And, and if, if, um, you know, if, if, if this labor code is interpreted the way the plaintiffs are saying it should be, um, my employer is going to feel like they don't, that they, that they just can't say yes to, to those sort of requests. As I understand it, there is some interaction between you know, this first question, uh, employees being entitled to to one day of rest in seven, and, and the third question, what it means for employers to cause them to work a seventh day out of seven. Uh, obviously, the district court found that you could have a rolling seven-day work week and still dismiss a case like this um, in situations where an employee, you say, volunteered or employer allowed rather than, than caused an employee uh, to work that seventh day, but we'll get more into that third question. And in a second, the, the second certified one dealt with the, this exemption from Labor Code Section 556, which says that the strictures of 551 requiring one day of rest in, in seven don't apply where an employee's work in a given seven-day period or in a given week doesn't exceed 30 hours or where he doesn't work, he or she doesn't work six hours in any one day thereof. And the Ninth Circuit uh, expresses <laughs> its opinion that it's somewhat amb- uh, ambiguous whether... That exemption applies then where an employee, say, on one given day works fewer than six hours, or if it only applies where an employee works fewer than six hours in all six of the other days. Um, is that roughly the, the the question? Right. So you're talking about Labor Code 556, which basically this is the exemption that Nordstrom's is relying on. So, you know, even if the court interprets, uh, you know, the, the seven day, the, the day of rest rule is, is applying on a rolling basis. They're saying, well, okay, as long as we only schedule the employee to work, you know, as long as they work less than six hours or six hours or less on any one of those days, we're okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the plaintiffs argue, no, no, it needs to be less than six hours on all of the, these days. Um, and, 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 you know, there, there, there is, I, you know, probably some ambiguity in that text. Um, the, the, the actual code section says when the total hours you know, worked by an employee do not exceed 30 hours in any week or six hours in any day thereof. So, you know, on the one hand, I would say it's probably a more natural reading. And certainly, actually, the, the Ninth Circuit, I think, even suggested that it was the more natural reading to say that to, to go with Nordstrom's interpretation that um, that means, you know, when someone hands you a deck of cards and they say, pick any card, that implication is that they want you to pick one card, not all of them. Um, but the Ninth Circuit also said, but sometimes any means all. <laughs> when I, right. Now, I, I sometimes when I'm talking about legal issues, I, I, I say, you know, got to pass the mother-in-law test or the wife test where you can just, you know, <laughs> ask a question to someone and say, what, well, you know, what does a reason, you know, the average reasonable person think? And I mentioned that the, the Ninth Circuit says any means all to my wife. And she said, I, no, I, I think all means all is what she said, which mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think that's, that's the case that the legislature meant that all of the days needed to be, uh, you know, scheduled for less than six hours, well, then they probably would have said all. But that's not what they said. In any event, you know, there's, there's certainly, as lawyers are apt to do, there's, there's room to argue on both sides of this. I suppose maybe the most logical argument, pushing back against you just a little bit, is the, the or there, the alternative it creates is either, you know, fewer than 30 hours a week or fewer than six hours in, you know, as we could say, one or all the other days. If you worked nine hours and five out of the days and then five and a half and one that would be you know quite a bit more than than 30 so that i imagine is the the strongest argument on the other side i'm not, I'm not sure well that that i mean that that may be and and you know to be honest that this aspect of the the case was was not one that we focused on and that, and that wasn't because we didn't think it mattered but 
in terms of prioritizing our energy with these these amicus briefs, we tend to kind of hone in on on the um, the issues that we think are most concerning from the small business perspective. And 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 frankly, I think with an effective amicus brief, you don't want to go with a scattergun approach. I mean, we don't necessarily. I, I don't think it necessarily benefits uh, the party we're supporting always to to try and touch all of the bases. Frankly, that's for the parties to argue. So, um, so I, I didn't really focus, you know, too intently on on that aspect of the argument um, as I was preparing our amicus here, but I will, you know, at least in, in concept agree that, you know, and it seems like the Ninth Circuit agreed that, you know, the purpose here was to, you know, to some extent ensure that uh, this exception applied when we're talking about sort of part-time employees. That's certainly what the plaintiff right. said. Um, and so, you know, there, there, there would be some, um, there, there's, there's certainly good arguments on both sides of that equation, but I, you know, I think it's, it's certainly moot if, sure. um, the, the court, you know, accepts our interpretation on, on the, um, the, the, whether it should be based on a rolling week in the first place or based on, uh, on a concrete calendar week. Now, and that's why we, part of why we focus our energy on that question. You certainly did. And also you focused, um, some argumentative energy on, on the third certified question, uh, essentially what the, the interpretation of the term cause is in these sections and what it means for an employee to cause an employee to work a seventh day out of seven, whether cause means coerce or pressure, or if it just means allow or encourage. Uh, the district court uh, ended up applying a more strict construal of, of the term, saying, you know, the section implies an employer applying some coercion to an employee to work when it means cause. And so in instances where the employer merely allows it to happen, that could be okay. Um, could you, I guess, walk me through the, the different rationale on the sure. opposing side of this question? So, I mean, in the in the the district court, they, you know, they relied um, on, on sort of an analogy to the Bringer case, which if you follow California employment law, you know, is an important decision dealing with meal and rest breaks. And, and in that case, you know, the statutory language said that employers have to provide a meal and rest break in certain intervals. And so the question was, what does it mean to provide? Um, and so relying on Brinker, the district court said that so long as an employee is not compelled to work in violation of the day of rest statute, the employer is not violated the statute. Now, the Ninth Circuit wasn't really convinced by that rationale because they said, well, you know, provide means to supply something, whereas the word cause means something else. The word cause means to induce or, to, you know, the natural or probable consequence of one's actions. So um, so they asked, you know, is, is it enough to just encourage or reward an employee to work uh, a shift? Um, what if, you know, what about allowing an employee to trade shifts voluntarily? Now, this is where, you know, we started raising concerns on behalf of employees saying, wait a minute, you know, employees might have all sorts of reasons um, to, that they want to be able to voluntarily change their you know, trade shifts, that they might want to voluntarily um, take on more hours. Um, and, and certainly, I, I don't see the practical harm in an employer just asking, so do you want to take the shift? Um, because I think it's a, certainly a different situation where someone is um, is actually um, <laughs> threatening in some way, sort, some sort of punishment, some sort of adverse consequence if they don't uh, if they don't say yes. But I mean, merely making that op- option available, offering financial incentives, um, I, I have a hard time seeing what's wrong with that. But certainly, as as, as Amicus, we argued that um, you know the labor code first of all does not say that an employee must take a rest break. It says that. They're entitled to a day of rest. And as you, you know, and there's all sorts of entitlements that are, you know, the entitlements are by nature a gratuitous benefit that you can either choose to enjoy or, or forgo. So by its nature, um, 
an entitlement is something that you can choose to waive. I mean, I, I might be entitled to Social Security benefits, but that doesn't mean I'm, I have to take them. Um, the second, the term cause implies, I think, some sort of force or coercion. Um, that does not necessarily imply that employers should be prohibited from asking employees to take their shift. I, I just I don't see how that argument works. But um, and frankly, I think if you want to sort of respect um, employees, sort of what's best for employees here, and certainly one of our sort of overarching arguments is that when we're interpreting you know statutory text, especially in the context of labor and employment issues, um, it, it makes sense you know, to A, allow employers to continue to operate under long established, you know, practices unless the legislature has clearly said they can't. Um, here, to the extent there's ambiguity, it doesn't really make sense to upend a long tradition of allowing employers to have flexibility for their employees. And also, it doesn't make sense to presume that the legislature would want to interfere with the flexibility that's much needed for employers and employees alike. I mean, that flexibility is important. Um, and also, you know, the implication of the, the plaintiff's argument that there needs to actually be a written waiver if someone's going to actually waive their right to a day of rest is is rather um, well cumbersome. There's there's one there's no you know there's no textual basis for saying that there has to be a written requirement. That's certainly inferred, and certainly it would be well almost preposterous to say that anytime I want to check email, I've, I've had a busy six, you know, six days of working because I'm, I'm really busy with what I'm doing right now at work. And by the way, these code sections, I think, apply to exempt employees just as well as non-exempt employees. So you might have me as a lawyer working six very busy days um, or maybe five very busy days, but I decide to do a little bit of something on Saturday and by, you know, I want to check my email on Sunday. Well, technically checking your emails is time spent working. Um, it, it seems uh, almost well, it does it seems absurd to me to to expect you know an employer an employee to have to you know do some sort of a written paperwork to to get authorization in order to to do that? But that's that's where we are if if the plaintiffs get their way here. So maybe put briefly then your your argument on this this point would be that the the section forbidding employers from causing employees to work a seventh day out of seven. Um, doesn't prevent them from say, allowing an employee or offering an employee um, the opportunity to do that work. What what exactly would you say it, it does pre- prevent them from doing? Well, we we would agree with the district court's rationale. I, I think that um, the line would be coercion. So if there was if there was facts in the record to suggest that an employee had a plausible basis for thinking that they were going to, you know, face some sort of, um, you know, consequence for saying no, well, then it's not just an ask. That's, that's, um, that's, that's coercion. Um, but I mean, certainly, you know, if they have a right under California law to a day of rest, um, employer is prohibited under very, very basic principles uh, from retaliating from, you know, an employee uh, or, you know, pressuring an employee into waiving that. We, I would agree with that. But, it, it doesn't seem like you're accomplishing any sort of public good and tying the hands of the employer so that they they can't um, they can't even ask an employee if they want to take maybe the employer really wants to take on the, the more shifts because they really are trying to save for something it just it doesn't seem like good public policy and if the legislature intended that sort of uh, written requirement well you'd think they would write it in the statute and say it has to be a written written waiver so. Uh, maybe getting out of, out of the weeds a little bit uh, and 
zooming out to look at some of the more overarching themes of your amicus brief, one prevailing one seems to be that you argue the interpretations proposed by the plaintiffs would be fairly paternalistic. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly it doesn't serve the employee's interest to you know, tie the employer's hand and say, you know, we can't allow you to, the flexibility that you need. Um, you know, and I, 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 we've already kind of talked about some of these examples. Maybe I'm saving for a hefty college tuition bill. Maybe I want some extra savings for the holidays. Uh, maybe I want some flexibility off because I'm planning a trip to Europe. Um, you know, whatever those cases are. And I mean, just to give you, you know, some more concrete examples, we had actually a number of, um, you know, people sign on who said that they're they're an employee, you know, and they had concerns. I mean, I, one of these guys signs on to our amicus brief, works for um, a management company for, you know, uh, residential apartments. And, you know, so he kind of fixes things up. Well, he really enjoys, A, the flexibility to make his own schedule, and, and be the prerogative to, you know, kind of, um, you know, manage his work around his personal life. And, and, but he frequently works on a little bit on, you know, seven days. He'll work very hard, um, well in excess of 40 hours on an average week. But, um, but he enjoys, he likes getting that seventh, seventh, working on seven days in a row because he gets overtime. And that's, that's, um, that's big for him. You know, one of these other folks, one of the other amici is a school teacher. And she said, you know, I really want them to be, to be able to maintain the flexibility to, you know, occasionally grade papers, uh, or exams on a weekend, uh, and, you know, to do lesson planning on, on that seventh day as I see fit. You know, I've got a, one of the guys who signs on is a salesman. Well, you know, he is paid on a commission basis. What he cares about is closing the deal. And if that requires, you know, a quick phone call on the seventh day after he's been working six days or whatever, he wants to be able to do it. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense um, to, to, you know, say that an employee cannot decide for themselves, um, you know, what is in their best interest here. Also in your in your brief, you tend to, to part ways with the Ninth Circuit and saying that this area of law seems fairly settled. It seems like there there is a an approach that employers and employees have have taken over the past decades. Uh, in the the order certifying these questions, the Ninth Circuit says these questions are sort of open. There's not a whole lot of legislative history regarding them or case law. What are some of the reasons you find that these questions are more settled than perhaps the Ninth Circuit uh, seems to believe? First of all, the, the day of rest statute has been on, on the books here in California since the 19th century. And apparently the plaintiffs think that they've deciphered the, the proper meaning of that for the first time, um, you know, in more than a century of, of, you know, employers operating on the assumption that they can, you know, comply with that by giving one day off on each work week. Um, you know, so, so there's this long practice, you know, at this point, historic practice that the courts have generally deferred to, and, and, and frankly, the way that they operate under um, in, in their view of um, you know wage and hour law and overtime rules, generally speaking, and you've got to interpret all of that in a um, in a cohesive manner. And so, and one of the reasons that I say that this is so um, well established is, is, is the DLSC has provided guidance on, on several occasions. Um, one in 1968, they said. Um, employment more for more than six days in a work week is permissible, provided that the employee is compensated for overtime. Well, why would they say that if it wasn't permissible under another? I mean, you, you, they, that, that's just leaking someone into a regulatory trap. Um, and, and likewise, they've issued subsequent guidance. Um, once again, talking in the context of overtime, but very clearly um, make, making clear that employees can work 
um, uh, you know, 10 consecutive days without overtime if based on, because again, the overtime requirement is based on a work week. Um, but it doesn't make sense. If, if an employee is looking for any sort of guidance on this rest period, rest, um, day of rest stuff, um, this is the best available guidance. And it certainly seems to imply very strongly that it is completely permissible to have an employee work 10 consecutive days over the course of two separate work weeks. And that, um, that is, that is, that is legal. And I think any reasonable employer would construe that guidance as unequivocally permitting the practice. And, and I think it necessarily implies that the day of rest requirements are imposed on a fixed weekly basis because you've got to assume that TLSC is synthesizing all the relevant portions of the labor code. Um, and, and, and further, you know, cause, cause TLSC has provided this, you know, this guidance and it's the best available guidance. Uh, we argued that it would really be, you know, an unfair surprise to business owners who, you know, acted in reasonable reliance on, you know, what the best thing that guidance that DLC has given um, to pull the rug out from under them and say, actually, you're liable. Um, you know, certainly if that was going to be imposed, liability is going to be imposed retroactively. That would be a huge problem. I mean, obviously, if the court was to pronounce the interpretation and say, well, it's only going to have prospective effect, that well, that that wouldn't that would at least obviate our due process concern. But we we still um, we still think that just as a general matter, um, it doesn't make sense to assume, you know, an interpretation that that um, goes against the grain of just the basic way in which employers have been operating all this time in which the agency has 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 essentially um, consented to or encouraged. And and, and certainly if, if you know, and the, the legislature here in California is cer- certainly aggressive when it comes to labor issues. Um, and if they thought that there was a real problem, well, I, I think they, they would have done something uh, if they, they really thought that it was not okay that employers are operating on this work week basis. So again, I, I find it, I'm always skeptical when I see someone come up with a new interpretation of a statute that goes against the grain of the way things have been done and interpreted for a long, long time. Yeah, the, the last point I did want to bring up about your brief is that point about the the application of this ruling, say it goes in favor of the plaintiffs. If it is retroactive, it, as you say, it seems like it would create quite a bit of liability if these are the practices that are generally accepted and done by many employers throughout the state. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think the reality is that employers, like I said, employers have been operating on, on the understanding that they're working on a work week basis for all of this stuff. And it's not just Nordstrom's. That would be, I, I guarantee it, many, many other businesses would be on the hook um, for as long as the statute of limitations would allow employees to go back. So I, frankly, I think if they, um, if the plaintiffs should win here, it would not only result in a sea change in sort of employment practices here in California, it would be a really big deal in that regard. But it would also, um, I think, open up a... Um, I, I, I don't want to be dramatic, but, uh, you know, a deluge of, you know, of um, lawsuits against employers for all sorts of things. Maybe uh, one last one regarding your brief, I'm sure, in researching it, uh, you had analyzed your, your other side's best arguments. Do you, do you find any colorable or, or plausible arguments that the plaintiffs are making when it comes to inter- the uh, interpretations they propose of these statutes? Sure. Um, you know, they argue that, you know, the term work week would be included within this section if, if in fact, it was intended to be there, um, that the legislature, you know, clearly used the word work week and other provisions of the labor code. So if they intended it to work on a work week basis as, as opposed to a rolling basis, um, it, they they certainly at least make a, a 
a colorable argument on, on that point. But, you know, we argue that, you know, that that's that's a invoking the canons of statutory construction. It doesn't really make sense to go there um, because the language is the plain language. I, I, I don't think supports that view. But but even if you're going to go into the canons of construction, well, if anything, you know, we argued that, um, you know, for one, this is actually a misdemeanor. And so um, because there's an element of criminal um, liability here, it's, uh, you know, the, the rule of lenity would apply, we would argue, in, in, in terms of construing this in favor of employers, um, which and but I would say, you know, you're, you're, on the other issue, um, you know, on the question of what does it mean, you know, when when does an employer actually violate this? You know, is it when they when they ask someone to to take a ship? Um, you know, they, the, the plaintiffs, you know, certainly raise. Uh, you know, concerns about coercion, which I, I think are, you know, there, there are legitimate concerns that an employer, you know, some, some employers might, um, you know, push the envelope, um, and make an employee feel like they have to say yes. And, but, uh, you know, but we, we concede as much and say, look, if they're, if they're, um, actually acting coercively, well, then, then that's a problem. So, um, you know, obviously, again, it's, if the employer is going to retaliate against the employee for taking their rights and so in any way, that would be problematic. So, but I, I don't. I think that that argument proves too much because they're 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 not just challenging the coercion. They're 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 trying to literally tie the hands of the employees so that they can't even trade shifts. And trust me, if you've got employees who are working, let's say at Starbucks or, or whatever, um, they want to change their you know switch shifts all the time to you know for whatever personal reasons might might come up. And so I think just, you know, just as far as policy arguments go, I, I think really um, the stronger policy concerns here actually do counsel in favor of, um, of giving flexibility to the employers and employees. Okay. We'll find out soon enough this case uh, now pending, argued in February, and we'll uh, hear an answer to these questions in the next few weeks. For now, Mr. Luke Wake from the National Federation of Independent Business, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. That was Luke Wake of the National Federation for Independent Business. I'll move now to my chat with Deputy City Attorney Will J. Perky in the case of Perry v. Bakewell Hawthorne. Happy to welcome into the program now Mr. Will J. Perky, Deputy City Attorney for the City of Los Angeles, also a, a column contributor to our perspective section of the Daily Journal newspaper, submitted a column on the case we'll discuss here in a moment. Uh, Mr. Perky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we're talking about a California Supreme Court ruling that filed at the end of February. It was a short one, an eight-page opinion, but it does seem like there's a lot going on here. It deals with a somewhat technical uh, civil procedure question, but it seems like one that might come up with some frequency. Um, It also overrules, at least in part, a couple of other previous cases that spoke to the question at issue. Um, It talks about the summary judgment standard itself and how favorably courts should view it. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, notwithstanding the the brevity of the opinion, maybe to start the uh, there's a couple of civil procedure codes um, sections that are at issue here that have some interplay. Um, a familiar one, CCP 437, to most folks regarding summary judgment, and another one, CCP 2034.260. Could you tell me a bit about these two statutes, what they provide for, and how they uh, sort of relate, without kind of getting into the the actual ruling here? Sure. Um, well, before Perry, they didn't relate, at least the courts didn't think they were related, but CCP Section 437C is a motion for summary judgment 
statute. It also allows for adjudication of a particular cause of action or a, an adjudication of specific issues. So it has significant import when it comes to deciding whether you can resolve the case prior to trial on motion. CCP section 2034.210 is the um, statute that allows a party to demand that each side declare their own experts and provide a list with what the anticipated testimony is of the experts that they plan to present at trial. It does not require either party to disclose impeachment witnesses or experts. I understand that pursuant to that 2034 statute, if the information regarding um, a party's witness is not proffered, then any subsequent or later untimely submission of their testimony could be viewed as as not admissible at trial. Is that correct? Yes, there's mandatory language in the statute that requires the trial court to exclude any unreasonable, untimely disclosure. There are provisions in the statute if you want to augment or amend or submit a tardy uh, list, and there's a procedure set forth to do that. But clearly, if you fail to do any of those, um, then you will lose a uh, the use of these potentially you know important parts of your case if it's an expert-driven uh, uh, case, such as a medical malpractice case. Then with those rules laid out, let's go ahead and, and apply them to the facts here along with the California Supreme Court. So could you tell me a bit about what's going on in this case? Who is the plaintiff? What's their story? How did they get into court? And uh, what happened in the, the action in the Superior Court? Well, uh, the uh, the case itself is what you might call a typical run-of-the-mill uh, personal injury matter involving allegations of specifically a dangerous condition of private property. It had to do with some stairs. Um, and in the process of the discovery, uh, apparently at, at the trial approach, defense counsel went ahead and filed a motion for summary judgment and uh, in the context of that, a demand for a list of experts had also been made. Oddly enough, uh, the, um, this is a, a particular problem I see a lot when you review a lot of these cases. Plaintiff's counsel objected to the disclosure demand for experts as being untimely. Unfortunately, had he read the statute, he would have seen that there is no such objection allowed. You need to make a motion for protective order. He didn't do that, so he didn't preserve any uh, problem he may have had with the uh, alleged um, untimely demand. He then failed to comply by failing to list an expert. However, that due date occurred prior uh, to the hearing date for uh, the motion for summary judgment. As a consequence, when it came time for uh, the filing of the opposition, the plaintiff miraculously found two experts who were able to allege in declarations in opposition to the motion for summary judgment that, in fact, uh, the stairs were dangerous and in violation of local municipal codes. But, of course, unfortunately for the plaintiff's attorney, uh, those declarations were excluded pursuant to an objection filed under 2034.300 of the Code of Civil Procedure, saying that if, if you don't actually timely submit the declarations, you will then end up losing the opportunity to 
present those. So in that context, uh, the plaintiff had no opposition, no admissible evidence. Summary judgment was granted, and then it went up on appeal. Uh, and then I understand the Court of Appeals affirmed, and then the California Supreme Court took a look. I imagine that they did so because before they get to their holding, they address the fact that there is some uh, intermediate appellate language that was cited by the original plaintiff, the appellant, um, supporting its side, essentially saying that it would be possible for a party that had maybe missed their window to provide that expert information to still submit declarations and such at the summary judgment stage. One of those cases was Kennedy versus uh, Modesto City Hospital. Could you tell me what's what's going on in that case? Yeah, well, uh, basically, um, the reason why Perry is important is that it kind of redirects the judge's view from that of fairness in rulings on motions for summary judgment to that of emphasizing statutory coordination, even where statutes such as, in this case, 437C and 2034, had at one time been considered disparate. Um, and as a consequence, the court ends up unifying the whole view of trial and motions for summary judgment, emphasizing the importance of a core consideration of both statutes, and that is admissible evidence. So uh, and I'll get to those points, but essentially... Um, the Perry confirms the ascendancy of the motion for summary judgment as a primary tool to avoid trial and redirects the contextualization of the statutory interpretation of 437C and 2034, the Code of Civil Procedure. And so doing it overrules both Kennedy and uh, Mann, which were uh, cited by the um, plaintiff in his attempt to overcome the um, loss of his um, case. And in doing that, um, it really had, a, I think, a significant impact on how courts are going to be viewing motions for summary judgment. The second case you mentioned, I believe, was Mann versus Cracciolo. Uh, the court did say that perhaps the reason those two cases, Kennedy versus Modesto and Mann versus Cracciolo, might have come out the other way is they've, they were published a couple of decades ago. And since that time, there's been a bit of a shift in the court's and now they tend to view motions for summary judgment more favorably. Uh, could you describe to me that shift? I mean, I guess how it occurred and, and, and in fact, um, to what extent courts do view that motion more favorably now? Sure. Um, for quite some time, the guiding principle of civil jurisprudence had been the importance of ensuring trial on its merits, that a plaintiff was entitled to his or her day in court, with the expansion of the motion for summary judgment, which actually shortcuts that process, um, a number of legal scholars um, since the, um, actually the turn of the century, but clearly in the last, uh, nine, since 1980s, have felt that the motion for summary judgment has in effect um, affected uh, the fair administration of justice. And why uh, the court in Perry seems to reduce the importance of fairness is when you look at um, the examples of Mann and Kennedy that were cited in the um, Supreme Court ruling, specifically Mann had a skeptical view of the motion for summary judgment, calling it drastic and should not be used except with uh, caution, while um, Kennedy went on to argue that, again, this is the subsequent appellate decision Man being a uh, California Supreme Court decision, 1985, Kennedy being a, 
appellate decision in 1990, went on to state that the purpose of summary judgment is actually limited and is really there to only eliminate the necessity of trying sham and meritless cases. And of course, that has fallen out of favor and a lot of scholars believe that this kind of stems from what has began to occur in the 1986 in the United States Supreme Court with um, summary judgment decisions known as the trilogy, Celotex, Anderson, and Matsushita decisions. Those three cases liberalized federal summary judgment practice that some have claimed has led to the development of bias in the granting of such motions in favor of defendants. Uh, this concern hasn't been limited to the federal court. Trial judges here in California have also been suspected of acting similarly with a perceived increase in granting motions for summary judgments for defendants, suggesting that courts feel pressure to clear their docket and avoid lengthy trials. Now, em empirical research may be a benefit on these issues. I know you've had a uh, podcast on empirical use of data from appellate decisions throughout the state of California. Um, this has been going on actually empirical reference since at least the early 1980s. So um, that certainly might be of some interest, but what is undeniable is that defendants are increasingly using summary judgments as a tool to dispose of a case pushing back the possibility of settlement until after all discovery is complete and a court evaluates the evidence on dispositive motions. This increase can be tied to the fact that the defendant is only required to present some evidence, creating a rebuttable presumption that no material fact um, issue exists before the burden shifts to the plaintiff opposing the motion, while the plaintiff has the burden to establish every element necessary to sustain a judgment in its favor. It certainly seems like this re-emphasis and re-clarification of how a summary judgment is viewed by courts has got to be the kind of language that would get uh, copied and pasted into really any motion for summary judgment by a California attorney going forward. You would think so. And again, what it's really saying is that, and this is something that's important, is that, you know, the statutory interpretation as used in Perry is really essentially reconstituting um, the contextual view of the statutory scheme. The cardinal role in constructing or construing a statutory scheme is to discover and give effect to the intent of the legislature. The court does not view the particular statute in isolation, but in context of the whole system of law, which is a part of that, and as a consequence, they want to harmonize all to give that whole effect. Now, oddly enough, that was actually uh, a paraphrase from Kennedy as it used its argument for the rationale that uh, CCP Section 2034 and 437C were not coordinated and argued that at that time in the 1990s, um, the rationale of the reference to trial in 2034 separated it from the motion for summary judgment because there did not appear to be a coordination between the two statutes. Well, Perry turned it on his head and said they are coordinated and using the same argument of construing the statutory scheme in context, they looked at 
coordinating these two statutes by harmonizing them and arguing based upon the core principle that they both seemingly address, the one at trial, the one at pretrial, the same idea of the use of admissible evidence. The argument being, if you didn't properly list your expert and it was excluded, you had no admissible evidence, either for summary judgment or a trial. So why argue that they are not coordinated when, in fact, they basically go to the same or similar issue? So sort of enunciated briefly, is that the rule that comes out of this case that's most prominent, that these these statutes do relate? One makes evidence inadmissible if it's uh, not properly submitted, the 2034, and then 437 says if evidence is inadmissible, you can't use it to, to fight summary judgment. Is that the... Yeah, the, exactly. The basically, exactly. So the, the underlying concept is admissible evidence. And of course, one of the odd, odd things is that uh, in 1985, 1990, cases of Mann and Kennedy basically argued that um, the defin- you know, the evidence you would use at a most for summary judgment was different than the evidence that you would use at a trial, which, when you think about it, doesn't make much sense because you're, you would have to use admissible evidence anyway. The evidence code requires only relevant admissible evidence can be used. So why would you be having a completely different standard for summary judgment than you would at trial? So Perry really seems to do away with that distinction. Yet there are still other cases out there by the Supreme Court as late as 2010 that suggest that there is a different rule relative to summary judgment when it comes to um, the evidence uh, that's attached. So it's kind of an uh, the, the objections that you would make to the evidence. In, in what ways are there uh, still on the books some California Supreme Court distinctions between the types of evidence that could go in at summary judgment uh, or, or trial? Yeah, uh, Currently, uh, there's a case called Reed versus Google Inc., and that is um, 50 Cal 4th or, sorry, 512, 2010, and it basically acknowledges the argument that a different rule should apply when evidentiary rulings are made in the context of a summary judgment motion. And it went on to argue that because summary judgment is decided entirely on the papers and presents only a question of law, it affords a very few occasions, if any, for truly discretionary rulings on the questions of evidence. Uh, and this is interesting because subsequent uh, rulings have suggested that the practical effect of read on review of summary judgment in which evidentiary issues, and in fact all issues, are decided on paper alone to require the application of a de novo review as opposed to what had typically been the standard review of abusive discretion. So it's interesting to note that even though Perry tends to say you can't separate uh, summary judgment from trial, we still have the idea that Summary judgments may be treated differently on on appellate review when it comes to what is the standard. So that's just something to look out for, and we might see a case in the future that will actually clarify that for us. Is it actually um, standard 
for a trial de novo, which of course is a much broader standard, gives the court almost carte blanche to decide whatever it wants within the law, as opposed to abuse of discretion, which um, looks to uh, save the judge's decision unless there's some uh, true um, you know, abuse by the lower court. And one example of such an abuse would be um, a case where the, the court, uh, the uh, trial court, um, basically did not make any ruling on 763 objections uh, one way or the other, or at least uh, granted all of the objections without any real decision-making uh, power, which courts did find that that was, in fact, an, an evidence of abuse of discretion. So we're confronted with still uncertainty, and as we know, courts don't always address all the issues. So uh, we'll have some highlights probably in the future to consider when these issues come up again in light of Perry. Yeah, as, as clean and cohesive as this analysis is in the short opinion, obviously typical to, to the law, there's obviously more complexity lurking just, just behind. That's exactly. Interesting. So the okay. intriguing thing for anyone who's uh, involved with preparing motion for summary judgment is that um, you may think what the uh, the review is uh, by the appellate court and its duty and to find out it's completely different once you get up there. So we still have a lot of in- intrigue left for us. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. Okay. Um, now in your opinion piece that you submit to the Daily Journal, uh, you, you illustrate this a bit in practical terms, saying you might have a, a plaintiff who hasn't, say, secured his expert, his or her expert yet, um, and then the defendant makes one of these 2034 motions, so now the plaintiff needs to to submit information about the expert. They don't have it yet, but uh, before this ruling, they might think that it it's okay. They could still not submit it at that time and then have a chance to find an expert and still fight off summary judgment with a declaration or something submitted, submitted later. Um, so I suppose that seems like the most practical impact is that is not really a recourse that's available anymore for, for attorneys. Well, yeah, what it really reiterates is that you have to read the statute. This is a common problem I've found with most attorneys who have problems is that they don't read the statute. Again, emphasizing Perry, the counsel didn't read the statute. If he had, he would have realized that he couldn't object. He had to file a motion for a protective order. Um, again, uh, the shift from Mann and uh, Kennedy suggests that not only do you have to read the statute, but you have to understand that these can be read together and that, therefore, if you as a plaintiff's counsel have a demand for disclosure, you need to either uh, properly object or file your motion for protective order if you don't have an expert. Um, so if nothing else gives you more time to find one. As you say, along those lines, there's still sort of a, a chance for relief, even if uh, 2034 isn't strictly complied with, say, um, as you say, you haven't found an, an expert, you might petition the court, to, or if both parties fail to, say, timely disclose, um, are there, there ways in which the, the window doesn't shut as, as tightly or finally in these these matters? Right. There's uh, provisions in 2034 that allow you to um, uh, seek um, a submission of a tardy expert witness information. And it requires that you file a motion and you set forth um, the appropriate reasons that, you know, why it's tardy. 
And there's actually um, under 2034.720 subsection C1, it gives you the um, typical what we call 473 mistake, which is um, the failure, uh, result of mistake, inadvertent surprise or excusable neglect. So there's many ways out that you can argue if, in fact, you don't have the expert. But, of course, one of the things that is troubling is that, in my opinion, if you bring a case, you don't have an expert, you're really making a mistake. What that suggests, if you don't have the expert when you bring the case, is that you either don't um, really have the money and the wherewithal to um, pursue your case to its final conclusion, which is trial, or you really misunderstood the case. Because I think early experts are essential to determining whether you have a good case, to um, whether you have the ability to uh, pursue the case to trial. But that means upfront money as opposed to taking a case and hoping it's going to settle. Okay. Maybe just one last one in terms of the, the most salient takeaways from this case is that now that these two sections of the Code of Civil Procedure interact and relate, is it the restatement and reclarification of the summary judgment standard? What uh, what are the most important things for attorneys to know about this case? Well, I think the most important thing is that uh, Supreme Court is looking more at a statutory coordination of core values vis-a-vis trial uh, in that the issue is admissible evidence. And admissible evidence harkens back to the argument that you should make when you first see a case is whether, in fact, I should take the case, whether I have admissible evidence to prove my case, and do I need experts now to make sure what that evidence is. So um, since it's very common that defendants will be filing summary judgments and using um, experts, particularly in those areas that, that require them, plaintiff's counsel needs to be very cautious about taking a case that requires expert testimony without getting an expert early on in the lawsuit uh, because they're going to face the same problem that the uh, plaintiff's counsel faced in Perry. And, you know, they're going to waste a lot of money and potentially have an exposure for malpractice. Certainly do not want that. So uh, we've done our part here today to avoid uh, attorney malpractice. I appreciate it. Uh, Mr. (laughs) Will Will J. Perky, thanks for being on the podcast to chat about this uh, interesting case. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Brian. And with that, our program for March 10th, 2017 is complete. Once more, I tender very sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Luke Wake. And Mr. Will J. Perky, thank you as well for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Hope you find the short true-false test attached to this podcast where you can get one hour of CLE credit for having listened. It's more on Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>